and it didn't go to plan. Okay, the proposal to release the people was rejected, and as a result, their workload was increased. So the people were more miserable than ever. The morale is low, and hence the Lord encourages his servant Moses, ensures him that everything's going to plan, and he's given a message to communicate to this deflated and discouraged people. And that's found in verses 6 to 8. Uh, and it's this that we're going to consider in our time together this morning. Uh, but before we dive into the text, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you for your word. And, uh, Lord, thank you that you have spoken. Uh, you've revealed yourself in your word. And uh, Lord, thank you for what this portion of scripture has to teach us. May we have uh, teachable hearts. Help us to, uh, to see uh, that the message uh, that you have for us today, you know the needs of our heart. And we do pray that you would meet them today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in order to understand the Old Testament properly and fully, it's vital to remember that it's all about Jesus. And yet how easy it is to read the Old Testament and become so fascinated and engrossed with the unfolding narrative that we miss what we call the meta-narrative of Scripture. We get so caught up with the fascinating little stories, and there are many, but we can end up missing the big story. That being the redemption of mankind by Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the one story that is unfolding throughout the entire Bible. We can easily forget that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And this is a mistake because Jesus certainly viewed the Old Testament of speaking of and about him. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus speaking to a group of hostile Jews says, Search the scriptures, which at that point in time was the Old Testament, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Okay, so Jesus tells these people, okay, people who knew the Old Testament well, they had studied the scriptures diligently, okay, they knew its content. And yet Jesus informs them that they had missed the whole point, for they speak of him. Jesus made this same point on the road to Emmaus on the first Easter Sunday when he said, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so Jesus took the Old Testament and taught about himself, for he is the central message, the central theme through the entire Bible. And it's crucial for us to understand this, that both the Old and the New tell the one story. It's all about Jesus. And we mustn't miss that critical point. And I begin by stressing this for it's of utmost importance as we come to this text before us. For this is not just a record of Moses' message to encourage the enslaved Israelites. Okay, it certainly is that, but it's also much more. For it reveals much about the glorious gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in our text, which is the message that Moses was to communicate to this enslaved people, it contains seven promises given by God. Okay, seven I will statements. These promises are anchored in the covenant that he made with Abraham. And we see this from the first word in verse 6. Okay, you see wherefore. That's a reference back to the covenant in verses 4 and 5. Okay, because God remembered his covenant and he is a faithful God, he will keep his covenant. He gives his struggling people. Okay, remember they're enslaved in Egypt. Seven glorious promises of what he's going to do. And these promises picture our salvation in Christ. These seven promises can be considered in three groups, and that's going to be our approach. We will consider the promise of redemption, and that entails the first three promises. Then the promise of a relationship, which embraces the middle two promises in verse 7. And then the promise of riches, which incorporates the final two promises. And we'll consider what these meant to Israel and what they mean to us because of Christ. So firstly, let's consider the promise of redemption. This is in verse 6. It says, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. As most of us are probably aware, the children of Israel are in bondage at this point. They are slaves in Egypt. And every day is difficult. Great is the affliction. That they are groaning beneath the intolerable demands by the brutal taskmasters. These men showed no sympathy or no compassion. The people were bearing a heavy load and it was quickly becoming unbearable particularly after the ruthless increase to the workload from the new decree from Pharaoh after Moses' failed attempt to get a release. Okay, they now had to source their own straw while keeping up the existing quotas. And the taskmasters were as brutal as ever. Okay, so this is an horrific ordeal. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. How can we escape from this? And this is crushing them. How much more could they take? And it's in this predicament that God makes the promise, I will bring you out from under this burden. Okay, I will bring you relief. Like the parched man needing water, God would quench their thirst. Okay, he promises that, that he will take this burden. I will deliver you from this suffering. You desperately need liberation, and I'm going to grant that to you. I'm going to free you from this bondage. The great weight that is crushing you, it's going to be cast off. But this liberation was not going to be a temporary thing. It was not just a brief relief promised by God, but rather permanent. It was not like a painkiller to dull the agony, but... A cure. And this is seen in the second promise where he declares, I will rid you out of the bondage. Okay, this speaks of a complete severance, not mere relief. That this is a promise of complete deliverance. 
A good illustration of this term, rid you, is seen in young David's reasoning as to why he was able to go out and take on Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 and 35 says, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. Okay, that's the idea. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Okay, so David delivered the lamb from out of the mouth of the predator. And this is the imagery of what the Lord promises. Okay, to rescue a sheep from the jaws of a wolf. So they were going to be freed from the grips of Egyptian oppression. So it was not the case that God would merely lighten the load. But rather, he was going to completely deliver them. Okay, the cord of bondage was going to be completely severed. They would be free. And this freedom is encapsulated within the third promise, which is, I will redeem you. As I mentioned, as we come to the table, redemption has to be one of the most beautiful words for the Christian. Okay, it's, a, it's a term that is pregnant with meaning in its most basic form it means to release by the payment of a ransom or to buy back and this particular term was used in ancient slave markets one could come and pay the set price and the slave would then be released okay and this is the idea god was going to make egypt pay the price and then he would set his people free you know that there are actually two Hebrew words translated redeem or redemption. And the word used before us speaks of buying back what was originally one's own. Okay, and that has much significance in the present situation. Because a key theme in the early chapters of Exodus is who do the people belong to? Okay, do they belong to Pharaoh or do they belong to Yahweh? Okay, and, and this is the battle that is raging. Pharaoh claimed that, well, hey, these people belong to me, so I'm going to do whatever I please. But the Lord said, no, they are my people. And this was part of Moses' pitch for the people to be released. Pharaoh said, why should they be released? And Moses said, well, they are God's people. But the wicked ruler makes it abundantly clear, well, hey, no, they belong to me. But with this word that's used, translated redeemed, the true ownership is made clear god is about to buy back what belonged to him and the concept of the kinsman redeemer or the avenger of blood is also contained within this hebrew term okay now what's a kinsman redeemer well one bible dictionary defines it like this one who according to various laws found in the pentateuch it's the first five books of the bible had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need of vindication. And this Hebrew term designates a male relative who would redeem or who would buy back property or a person or often both. Okay? Or he would avenge the murder of a relative as a guiltless executioner. But the unique emphasis associated with this kinsman redeemer is the fact that this action is carried out on behalf of the near relative in need. Okay, that's the key point. 
And uh, this idea, this concept of the kinsman redeemer is illustrated most clearly in the book of Ruth. Okay? Boaz was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. But what is important to note in this concept is the fact that the one who is being redeemed does not pay the price to secure their own freedom. Okay, this is something they are unable to do. So in this situation here, Israel cannot set themselves free. Okay, they are unable to do that. It must be done by God. And here he makes the promise that he would. You know, in fact, the Lord would play the role of the kinsman redeemer in both of its forms. He acts as the avenger of blood because he releases judgment upon Egypt for their harsh treatment of his people. Okay, we, we see this in verse 6, where it speaks of stretched out arms. And understand, that would have formed a very vivid picture in the minds of the people, because the Egyptian hieroglyphic that represented might was two outstretched arms. And God promises judgment. Of course, this is speaking of the plagues that are about to be unleashed. So God, as the kinsman redeemer, would avenge the treatment of his people. And he also acts as the deliverer, redeeming his people from the trouble and danger that they find themselves in. So this was God's promise. Okay, that the Lord could see the predicament of his people and he would respond. Okay, that that's our God. He was not unmoved by the suffering of his people and he's still the same today. And he declared that he would liberate them. He would save them from their bondage. They would be completely set free. He would redeem them. Okay, this is God's I will declaration. And as someone has said, Jesus has taken these I wills and has turned them into the I have done it of the gospel. Okay, Jesus has taken these I wills and has turned them into the I have done it of the gospel. And that's good news. Because just like Israel, we too were in bondage. We weren't enslaved in Egypt, but in sin. And great was the burden. Harsh was the taskmaster. Dire was the situation. We're in a terrible predicament. And it's one that we deserved. One that we put ourselves in. We were chained in the shackles of sin. That the whips were cracking all around us. We were under the tyranny of Satan and sin. Miserable. Weighed down under the wrath of God. On our way to eternal damnation. That that's the quandary of all men in their natural condition. Spiritually enslaved in sin. Separated from God. And shackled to the reality of of the second death and hell. But for those of us who are in Christ, understand we have been set free from all of this. Okay, these three promises made to Israel have become a reality at the cross. My friend, Jesus has set us free from the slavery of sin. He came, he paid the price, paid the release price, paid the ransom. And that price, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, was his own precious blood. Okay, he's paid the ransom and he's taken us out of the slave market of sin. He rescued us from our enslavement and from our second death in hell. 
And my friend, we stood in the slave market of sin, destitute, disgusting, completely and utterly riddled in sin, chained and bound. The heavy weight of guilt was upon our shoulders. There was nothing good in us. And yet Jesus came to that slave market. He paid that ransom price that we never could. And he secured our release. That's what happens at salvation. Okay, when one places their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work upon the cross, the price is paid, the debt is settled, and we're taken out of the slave market. We're freed from the enslavements and spared from the penalty that we deserve. And what's interesting, the Lord said to Israel, I will bring you out from under these burdens. Jesus Christ says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, the load of sin is, is too great a burden for us to carry. But when a sinner comes to Christ, that terrible load is removed and rest is given. The Lord said to Israel, I will rid you out of your bondage. Hebrews 2.15, speaking of what Jesus has done, says, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ has delivered us from that bondage. The Lord said to Israel, I will redeem you. Ephesians 1.7, speaking of what Christ has done, says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We have been redeemed. We have forgiveness. We are free from the slave market of sin because of Christ. My friend, the Lord promised Israel deliverance. Jesus has delivered us. He has turned these I wills into the I have done it. We, we are no longer enslaved in sin. We've been freed from it. We've been spared from the terrible destiny that it was taking us to. That, that's good news. And this is ours because of Jesus. Redemption, that's the first promise. There was a second promise made, and that is a relationship. This is verse 7. It says, And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, delivering Israel from Egypt, which is contained in the first three promises is where we almost expect God to leave it so surely that is enough that was a great thing to promise surely this would mean so much for the people to, to finally be free but I want you to notice that the Lord in his marvelous grace doesn't stop just at freeing them just at redemption but he also promises a relationship the phraseology employed in verse 7, it's, it's so soft and affectionate. It contains two promises. It says, I will take you to myself as a people, and I will be to you a God. And what's interesting is that this phraseology is very similar to marriage and adoptive formulas of this particular time period. And that is significant because this is what is stressed. It's emphasizing a family relationship okay, God is declaring that I will take you as my people okay that this group of slaves the Lord's going to take them okay we're going to possess a, a unique 
relationship. I will be your God. You will get to know me. Okay, this is a promise of an intimate relationship of mutual affection. Okay, that these people were going to be adopted by God. They would be provided for. They would be protected. They would be his special treasure. The beneficiaries of his loving care. Okay, that this was a deep covenantal commitment. They would be God's family. And experience intimate fellowship with him. You know, one commentator in commenting on this verse said this. Before God desires to bring Israel to Canaan, he desires to bring Israel to himself. His aim and desire was not to simply bring into a land, but into an intimate fellowship. Fellowship and intimacy trump relocation. And this promise of adoption has extra significance when you remember the current predicament of these people. Okay, they're slaves, they're despised, they're downtrodden, no no one cares for them. They're the lowest of the low. No one esteemed them, but God did. And furthermore, understand that, that Israel didn't deserve this. Okay, they drifted far from God in Egypt. This is all of grace, that God would invite this despised and rejected people to himself, that he would adopt this helpless people as his own. Okay, this is the imagery, God adopting this poor, deprived orphan. It's like a poor, homeless child on the streets being adopted into the king's family. That's the idea. And here the Lord assures Israel of a special status. You will not only be delivered, but you will be my people in a way that others are not. That is the promise. And likewise, Jesus has turned this I will into a reality in the gospel. Now, just as God didn't start with the redemption with Israel, this is the same for the believer. We've not only been saved from sin, but understand we have been engrafted or adopted into the heavenly family. We are now a member of God's family. We have a special relationship. We are his people. He's our God. Because of Christ, we've been accepted into the heavenly family, embraced by divine love. Ephesians 1.5 says, having predestined us unto the adoption of children... By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the pleasure of his will. Okay, we've not only been redeemed, we've been adopted. We are God's children. He is our father. And he is the perfect father. According to Romans 8.15, we've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father. You know, the sense of the Greek is, God is our data. Okay, it's intimate. That that's the relationship that we enjoy as those in Christ. It would be accepted in the divine family. We can know the Lord personally and intimately. That is our great privilege as a Christian. You know, one author summed up this phenomenon like this. I have a connection with him. I know him personally and intimately. He's not just a God. He is mine. God promised Israel a personal relationship. Fellowship and intimacy was the goal. And in Christ, that is a glorious reality for us. We're part of the heavenly family. We can know God 
personally. We can have a relationship with Christ. That's amazing. That's what it means to be a Christian. But it doesn't stop here. There's a third group of promises that were made, and that was riches. The promise of riches. This is recorded in verse 8, which says, And I will bring you in unto the land, concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Now, the promise of land was an integral part of the covenant with Abraham. And within this, co- within this covenant, the land of Canaan was promised. And hence, this is the land that's spoken of within the text. It's referenced back in verse 4. And this is yet another blessing to be stacked upon the already high pile of blessings that have been promised. God had vowed that the people would be free from the Egyptian oppression. He had promised that they would enjoy a special relationship with him. But understand, this would not unfold in Egypt. God promised that he would also bring them into the land that he had sworn unto Abraham some 400 years previously. So there was a special place awaiting them that God had set aside. But notice the final promise in verse 8. It says that the land will be their heritage. The idea being that the people would not merely dwell in the land, okay, like they were dwelling in Egypt, but rather this was going to be their land, that they would own the land. It would be given to them as an inheritance. Now try, try and imagine that for a moment. You are a slave. You're getting flogged by the whip constantly. Your life is terrible. It'd be incredibly difficult to comprehend. Well, how am I ever going to possess land? Look, look at my current predicaments. I'm in poverty. Okay, they didn't possess any land, but really the land possessed them. And yet God promises them that in Canaan it's going to be different. You, you will possess a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And understand, not even Abraham possessed the land. Okay, all that he owned was a small burial plot. But here the Lord gives them the guarantee that they would not only be in the land, but they would own the land. They had a glorious inheritance awaiting them. And my friend, these two final promises to Israel are also promised to those of us in Christ. We have a land awaiting us and a glorious place it will be. The Bible tells us that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Okay, God provided Israel with a new home and we have a new home awaiting us after this life. You know, when life is over, okay, when, when you die, you will go to heaven to be with Jesus. And when the prophetic calendar is fulfilled, we will spend all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, we have a land of spectacular beauty and glory awaiting us. Okay, like nothing we have ever seen before. Okay, have you ever thought about this? God created this world in seven days. Jesus has been building for 2,000 years. Okay, he promises in John 14. What's it going to look like? It's going to be amazing. Okay, we have a place to go to that's free from sin, free from the curse. Are you looking forward to that? I am. No more struggles with the flesh. No more temptation to do wrong. No more aches and pains. Your bad back will be gone. But you know what's even greater than this is the fact that we will be with Jesus forever. 
That is our future hope. You know, but just like Israel, it's not only a land, but we also have a grand inheritance promised to us. Okay, Romans 8.17 tells us that we as the redeemed are heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. That, that, that's a wonderful reality. Okay, we're joint heirs with Christ. As one author put it, to be an heir of a wealthy man on this earth would impress most of us. But to be an heir of God is beyond our comprehension. His riches know no bounds. His wealth is so great, it's untold. And we are heirs of all of that. That's amazing. And this heavenly inheritance is not corruptible. It won't fade away like the things on earth. And this is reserved in heaven for us. You know, it's impossible for us to fully comprehend all that we have in store for us. I can promise you it's amazing. And we can rest assured that this inheritance will be given because according to Ephesians 1.14, that the down payment, that the earnest of the Holy Spirit has already been given. Okay, we have the Spirit. And this is the assurance that God will give all that he has promised. Okay, where we have so many precious and glorious privileges awaiting us as those in Christ. What a glorious hope we possess. In this portion of scripture, the Lord made seven glorious I will statements to the nation of Israel. And these have become the I have done it of the gospel because of Jesus. And may we this morning be reminded of the glory of the gospel. May we be reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ. May that encourage us. May that thrill us you know praise god we have been redeemed jesus has taken care of our sin we've been freed from his bondage and right now we, we can know jesus christ that's what it means to be a christian we can have fellowship with him walk with him and we have an unfathomable inheritance awaiting us these promises to israel they're amazing but their fulfillment in Christ is infinitely grander. And this is all ours because of Jesus Christ. We are blessed beyond measure because of Jesus. What a wonderful saviour is Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I do thank you for how good and gracious you are to us. Lord, we, we don't deserve your favour. And yet you have lavished so many wonderful things upon us. We have so many blessings in the present and we have so many wonderful things to look forward to. Lord, may this encourage us and help us as we navigate this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.